Have you noticed like post pandemic you have a hard time talking to people? I feel like two months of quarantine and like all of a sudden I'm unable to like look people in the eye and like really engage. I, like it's gotten better, but the first like two months after that, it was really weird like coming out of the bubble and like talking to people. I don't know, it's just my experience. Cause you just, you live in your insular house with your roommate and you know, your girlfriend and, and that's all you see. So new people became like a new interesting thing. I thought that was weird. I thought it was kind of interesting. I, I never stopped working. So I work from home as an editor when I'm not shooting or writing and directing. And that's been ironically one of the best editing years I've ever had. I was working as a creative director on Camp by Walmart, which is an interactive series of games on the Walmart website. And it actually changed its name a couple of times. It's something different now, but it was on walmart.com and you could go play these really cool games um, that were for, you know, for kids who couldn't go to summer camp. That's kind of how it initially started. It changed a lot over the years, but it initially started as like a platform for people who couldn't go to summer camp but wanted an activity. So like the first season we were like making slime with kids. We were, uh, you know, like building little uh, like birdhouses out of popsicle sticks. And so you film these kind of tabletop things of the assembly of that, and then kids could follow along at home and of course buy Walmart products to, to do it. So it was a really cool idea for, you know, for the middle of uh, quarantine, it was, it's really cool. And I started out as their kind of like junior third level editor and worked up to creative director leading a team of 15 people and then moved from creative director to onset director, developed a show with them, and then the funding ran out. Uh, as happens and it was about time like it felt like the right a right like ending point for me having done it for like two years so it got me all the way through the bulk of the the hardest parts of the pandemic so that was a real blessing that was really cool but on set that got to zero you know I think the first on-set experience was directing for them in that whole time so that was a real trip getting back onto set, and then all the new protocols. You know, you can't sit with people for lunch. You gotta sit behind screens, you know. I got into film when I was 16. I was sitting in English class, bored out of my mind. I, I am not, um, I did well in school. I didn't really like school. I don't like being, how do I put it? I like learning at my own pace. I like doing, you know, getting hands-on with stuff. Like I'm a hands-on director, I'm a hands-on learner. I'd rather be, you know, apprenticing for someone than in a classroom doing theoretical work. I like seeing end result, real product, real thing, like tangible action. Gets me really excited. Um, so I'm in, I'm, so I got into film when I was 16. I'm sitting in the English classroom, bored out of my mind, and I'm thinking, what career do I want? Well, hmm, you know what would be really fun? Sitting in a chair all day long and telling people what to do. <laughs> and so I said, well, what, what, uh, what could that possibly be? Oh, uh, directing, perfect, I'll just be a director. And that's how it all started. Um, <laughs> it's a little facetious. I mean, that was a real thought I had as a joke in my own head. Like that was not, uh, I, I'm not necessarily, um, egomaniacal, but then again, I do have do-it-yourself-itis, so maybe, maybe so, maybe there is something there. Um, but really, story has been a big part of my life. As a, as a kid, being in like third or fourth grade, like I wrote my first short story in probably third grade, and it was a, it was a, like a spinoff of War of the Worlds, and it's incomprehensible. 
like there there were no awards at a young age it's just like i liked writing and i liked like typing up stories and like that was i just kind of kept doing that and i wanted i got into kind of web design and 3d modeling in like eighth grade and i was just kind of like oh it'd be really cool to like make these worlds and see things come to life in, in these kind of ways but 3d modeling is obscenely hard um and uh, web design has nothing to do with storytelling. But, you know, web design back in like 2008, when I'm like in eighth grade, it's a totally different animal than it is now. We, 2008 to 2012, I would say, we standardized what a website looked like. I think Apple did really. And every freaking website in the entire world looks just like apple.com. It, they're all the same, but back in the early 2000s, you do these crazy things with like layers and Photoshopping and 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 you know like intro splash graphics that like transport you into the site, and you you actually felt like you were building almost like a building or or or, or, or something cool, and it was like more artful. And then it all just became this really polished like same page single screen layout, and everything looks great and it's clean as hell, but it's super boring. Um, and so I, I actually did web, I had a little web design company and I had like three or four clients and I did that until probably, I want to say 2016, 15, maybe 14. I still have one client that's held on all these years. They don't, they don't call me much anymore. Um, but every now and then I'll get a phone call to go tweak and tune up a website that I've been working on since 2013. Um, which is really cool. But yeah, I, I taught myself how to program websites was working on 3D modeling, got to high school, and really realized like storytelling is what I'm trying to get out of coding or web design, or that's my creative outlet. I want to tell stories. And so, you know, I went to Ethiopia with this tiny camcorder with Tropical Health Alliance Foundation, filmed my first little doc, was doing some stuff with my school, and I just got hooked. I got hooked by, 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 by the camera. And it's interesting because I've never been a huge cinephile. I, I, I love movies, and, and maybe this is part of it. I was deprived of movies a lot as a kid. Like, my parents were very strict with, like, if, if it means R, you're not watching that till you're, like, 18. Like, not under my roof, kid. Um, and, and I think that really made it a, a fascinating thing. You know, it's the forbidden fruit. Like what, and I remember being like in high school, 18, and watching my first couple of R-rated, you know, thrillers and being like, oh, whoa, look at how cool like this can be. This is so awesome. Um, and you know, I, 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 of course, like I, my parents just wanted to protect me. They're, they're being good parents. I, I love them for that, but it really did make it this really cool thing to see these films. But I'd never been a huge cinephile. I just had movies I really liked. And then I'd go to movies and say, oh, I really wish that movie had gone in this direction. I remember being a very arrogant 16 year old or 17 year old and watching like Inception for the first time. And going, but they, but why would you be in a dream if you couldn't do like crazy dream stuff? Like they should have had like bazookas the whole movie. Like of course, like Nolan, what are you doing? And like, you know, and like that little arrogant sixteen-year-old, like I, I could have done that better than Christopher freaking Nolan. And like, no, there's no way. Like he is the pinnacle of all that is cinema. What am I thinking? But uh, you know, I, 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 it was that kind of attitude and, and ego that really like, oh, okay, like maybe I can go do this and, and have fun. Um, and so right out of high school, I had three big jobs that were really formative to my filmmaking career. The first is I was a camera operator on Peter Himmelman's Furious World. Peter Himmelman is this awesome rock star who also was the composer for like Bones 
and a bunch of other TV shows. This dude like rocks. And he had this, like right when web series was this kind of cool thing that you were doing, it was all kind of like, it was like the very infancy of like video blogs, but it he did it as a variety show. So he would like play music, have special guests, interview people, have clips. It was all done live. It was like the predecessor to like Joe Rogan type podcast, but done at a much deeper, higher, I mean, like the dude had his full band come and play every Friday. And so I would leave high school at 1230, drive down to uh, Santa Monica and operate camera on his web show. And that was an absolute blast. And I learned so much and I like met content. I actually met the composer for my later feature film, Black Mark, working there. He was, you know, one of Peter's assistant composers at the time, and he branched out and got his own production company. And he, you know, I called him. I said, hey, I've got this feature, you know, do you want to compose for me? And he's like, I let me, you know, come into the studio. Unlike many other composers I interviewed, he invited me into the studio. And he said, here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to play, and you tell me if this is your movie. And he'd like watched like the first 20 minutes and he sat down and he played on his keyboard. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's Blackmark right there. And, and like we wrote themes, we wrote things. So all of that came about because of this first job that I had, you know, working on, on Peter Himmelman's Furious World. And, and that was so cool. Um, so cool to do. Second thing, second job that was really formative is I, our, around the same time, started walking onto film sets in my neighborhood. You know, one of the beautiful things living and growing up in LA is every day there's a film shooting three blocks away. Um, and so I, I read, read books that the way to get into the industry is just walk up and start talking to people. And I, uh, I walked up and onto a film set. They were filming a little movie called Hop, which is the Easter Bunny does something or other. And I started talking to the grips and I'm like, other than like, don't join the film industry, what do you advise that I do to get into the film industry? And they're like, oh, well, we're grips, we don't care, but go talk to our production manager, she's amazing. So I met someone named Holly Hagee, who is this amazing, she's Clint Eastwood's production manager. I didn't know that at the time, but she's Clint Eastwood's production manager. And she's done like just about every production over the last 10 or 15 years that Malpaso, which is Clint Eastwood's company has done. And so I met her. She invited me to come to Warner Brothers. Uh, she toured me through Clint Eastwood's office. I got to sit in his executive chair. Don't tell him. Uh, and uh, she introduced me around. She said, we'll, we'll call you. Go intern first. She got me an internship with a production company that was uh, Mel Gibson's producer. At, uh, and so I remember getting the phone call. I was in school. Uh, we, we were um, you know, in the middle of class. I get this phone call from the production company, and I get up in, in class, don't say a word, don't ask for permission, I just get up and leave class and take the phone call, and when I get back, the teacher is pissed. She writes me up, I have to go to the principal's office, I'm in super trouble, and I said, I don't care, I got a job, isn't that the point? <laughs> That's the point, that's why I'm here. So I got the internship, I, I, I had uh, an amazing time, I, I, I was, <laughs> because I wasn't in school at the time, I was their like, longest running intern. So I was there for like five or six months, while most of the interns were there for just like a summer. But I got to read scripts and they figured out I was a terrible reader. I like, I, I was so excited, enthusiastic. I would like say yes to every screenplay, but they found out I was a good editor. 
and that I knew Final Cut because I'd been working on Final Cut for a little bit, just in my own hobby projects. And so they put me on Final Cut Pro, uh, had me, you know, editing like intros and stuff. I made good connections, made good friends. And then at the end of that, I got an invite through just another random connection I made. I, I saved up and I bought a little camera, all right? And while I'm interning um, and while I'm working on Furious World, so like I'm getting a little bit of money and, and, and interning, I buy this camera and I think I must have responded to some sort of Craigslist ad or just advertised it. And uh, this guy uh, invites me to go to a film set, bring the camera along, you'll be there as an intern. They got a free camera out of it, but I got to learn. First day as a second AC, I walk up in front of the camera, my hand is shaking with the clapperboard, and I'm like, scene seven, take. I mean, like they told me how to do it right there, like clack, and it was terrible. And then like by the end of the day, I'm doing it like an old pro. And, and I got to like work with um, uh, a really great DP who's done a bunch of TV shows that you'd know, a really great first AC who's also, and they really broke me in. They're like, this is how it works if you wanna do camera. Because uh, I had this little camera that they wanted to use. So that, that gave me my first day, and I met the first AD from that show. And he invited me <laughs> to be a second AD on a shootout in Texas. And, and that was my first feature that I worked on. It was 21 days of trial by fire. I was working for a dollar an hour in crazy conditions. It was like freezing cold, constantly windy, working 14 hours a day. I was doing... I was driving people from El Paso to Marfa and back, which is a four hour loop, and then working an eight hour day on set, and then like trying not to pass out as I drive, and like all the safety things that people talk about now were not being talked about then with like turnaround time and crew. Like I was sleeping on a couch, <laughs> but it was a different, I, I hate to sound like an old timer, this is only 2011, but it was a different time. People were there for the art, and, and people were like working for not a lot of money, which it, it sucks. I mean, I was there for a dollar an hour, but they just wanted to make something cool. I mean, we were shooting on film and, and like I got to watch how a production can be run and should be run and how it shouldn't be run. And I, I learned all of those things and how the setups work and how to load film. And, and not that I've ever used that skill ever again, but all of these really formative things were just being on that set every single day for 21 days straight and, and amazing experiences and crazy experiences and like, I think the, the highlight is when the DP grabbed a shotgun with the owner of the ranch who also had a shotgun and they went rattlesnake hunting so they could clear the set from rattlesnakes so we could go shoot in it. Um, <laughs> don't tell my parents. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, but, but at the time I was so cool, so unbelievably and so formative and like threw on a layer of thick skin really fast because I was green as hell and that really broke me in as a, as a crew guy. And also showed, like taught me that like, you know what? Being a PA, being a second, you know, thing, I, I'm not sure I wanna spend a lot of time there. It was good that one time, uh, and I did it once more when I came back. But, but after that, I, I, I realized it was probably better to spend that time writing or developing projects than schlepping water bottles for people. Because um, that's a trap. This industry is filled with traps. It's the trap of the promise of upward mobility. And a lot of people think I'm gonna go be a background actor and then they're gonna discover me. You're never gonna get discovered if you're a background actor because they will only know you as a background actor. If you're a PA, you can move up through the production management ranks and you can be a, a, a unit production manager and maybe a producer if you work at it for many, 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 many decades. But if you really wanna be creative producer leading your teams, if you really wanna be a director, 
if you really want to be a cinematographer, I think now more than ever that we all have access to cameras. Shoot a movie on your iPhone. Even the big guys have shot movies on their iPhone. It's not even taboo anymore. So if that's the case, then you really need to start learning the skills of those roles and practicing those even on tiny levels. That's my ethos. Uh, rather than trying to get discovered, which maybe you'll learn how to do things right, but I guarantee you the moment you stop being a PA for like Warner Brothers and go try to make your own movie, you're not gonna have a Warner Brothers budget. So you better know how to do it on the cheap, not on the... So all that to say, I get back home, I get a phone call, a couple of years pass, I do a few odd jobs and worked on a, a, a DP'd, <laughs> it's actually really funny, one of my favorite projects is I DP'd a reality show uh, called Divine Intervention with Father Steve. And I got this job because I was filming a screenwriting conference. I just said, yeah, I'll come film so I could sit in on the, on the conference. I'll film for you, give you the footage, but I want to listen to what, it was John Truby. He was a great screenwriting instructor. I mean, like masterful storyteller. And I sat there in the front row and the guy who was running the event, who is a huge friend of mine now, Derek Christopher, sees my camera and he's like, hey, you want to shoot a reality show? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, and we did. We, we, shot, uh, we shot like six episodes for uh, Catholic TV about a priest who goes around town helping people. And, uh, you know, that show was crazy fun. There are several, a couple of the actors from Blackmark came out of that show. The, the Russian ambassador, if you watch the movie, Anatoly Dobrynin, he, he was on one of the episodes of Divine Intervention. That's how I met. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was a DP and I had like three or two or three crew guys. We, I'd bring the lights out, we'd shoot. And I have never had a better time. I've had one other better time, but like rarely have I ever had a better time shooting. That was just sheer fun. Because there was no pressure. Like they knew that I was green. They didn't care. But I got to really experiment and have like fun with lighting, fun with color. And I made it look, I, I, I look back on that and it looks, for what I did at that age, was freaking great. Like it was phenomenal. And we had a really fun time shooting it. So I, I, uh, I, I look back fondly on that job and we edited all six, delivered them. They aired on Catholic TV, so first broadcast thing. And then I, uh, and then I took a step down in my career from DP to PA again because Warner Brothers called. And Holly Hagee offered me a job on Jersey Boys as a PA. And I, how can you say no to Clint? <laughs> and how can you say no to Holly, who's been there every step of the way? And so I, I did that for nine months. Um, I was Because I was DPing, I was the last PA hired. So they put me in the warehouse, the costume warehouse. And I checked in every single extra. And there were probably almost 10,000 extras on that show. And I checked them in and got them through fittings uh, as my job. And then what I would do is after I'd get done with my job, I'd sneak down to set and watch them work because I have my little badge. And I snuck down once and then Holly said, hey, 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 hey. I know you're sneaky. you got to call in first. But then I would call in and say, hey, I'm going to set. And I'd like to watch. And they and they'd put me to work sometimes. And, and I did a couple of set days there. And it was, it was really cool. Um, and uh, they called for American Sniper. Uh, they wanted me back on that, but I, uh, I turned them down so I could go shoot, uh, go write and direct Blackmark. Um, so that was, uh, you know, I, I could have, I, I, I did carry Bradley Cooper's suit to set one day. So that's my closest to fame I've ever been, uh, <laughs> which was, uh, I mean, it's this, you know, $20,000 tuxedo. Don't, don't 
get in a car accident. Uh, lots of pressure there. Um, I don't think I was a particularly good PA, but I don't think I was a particularly bad PA. I think I was a very middle of the road PA. Um, so I, I, I had a lot of fun on the Warner lot and you know, got to sneak up uh, one night on top of the back lot back there and look down and watch them shooting a car stunt and Clint directing and, you know, uh, oh, great story from that. I'm running around the set and Christopher Walken's on set. And he, you know, he, he's cool, but he's got, he was in, he was a mobster in this movie, I think. And he's got the full outfit on and he's kind of skulking in the shadows. We're in the Belasco downtown, le level three. And I, like no one who's supposed to be there guiding him, telling him where to go is there. And I'm just like running around trying to, you know, find the bathroom or something. And Christopher Walken comes up and he goes, hey kid. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, where am I supposed to be right now? I'm like, I don't know where I'm supposed to be. So I'm like, uh, uh, I'm like, one second. Guys, I have Christopher Walken up here. I get on my walkie-talkie. Guys, I have Christopher Walken up here and uh, he, he doesn't know where to be. And like the first AD gets on the walkie, he's like, stop talking to him, turn around and walk away right now. We're gonna send a pro up there to handle it. <laughs> and so I, I just said, Mr. Walken, someone would be right along to come get you. And I just like bolted out of the room. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm sure he remembers me, you know. Because that's the closest to stardom he's ever been, clearly. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, that, that was a really cool day. That was a really cool day. Um, so yeah, it's been, a, it's been a long and storied career. But um, I, when, I, when I got out of high school, I set a goal for myself. And that goal is, in four years, I will write and direct my own film. Otherwise, I'm quitting all of this nonsense and I'm going to go be an engineer. Uh, I need to prove to myself because I don't want to be stuck. I want to have forward momentum, so I have to write it. And so year 3.5 comes along, year three and a half, and I haven't written my screenplay or anything producible. And I said, okay, this summer it has to happen. I locked myself in my room and I wrote Blackmark in three months. I wish I'd written it in six months because there are parts of that movie that I look back on now and even I don't know what's supposed to be going on in it. <laughs> <laughs> but but for where I was at and the skills I'd acquired, it's a production-wise, it's a damn good production. I, I and I'm pretty harsh on my work, but but the way that came out, the culmination of everything I'd been learning and all of the sweat equity I'd been putting into my career, when you sit down, when we sat down and watched that film, you know, the cast and crew, when the cast and crew sat down and watched that film in the theater for the first time. I actually felt really, really proud because I had, we had 90 people working on it and I did that at 22 and our producer Gabby was 19. And to pull off what we pulled off, I mean, it is a great piece for that alone. Mind blowing for no film school. You know, Gabby had a little film school, but she hadn't even graduated yet and she took time off to go do it. And I, I don't know if they counted it as her thesis. I hope they did. Um, but that was, that was a really incredible project. And, and there's so many good memories from that. I have, the, I, have this, I have this theory about life that everyone kind of looks to their parents' generation as like, wow, that was so cool back then. So like maybe Gen Z kids look at their millennial parents and are like, dude, like VHS camcorders and like Super Nintendo. I mean, like that's 100% a thing that's happening right now. I, I can tell because all of the preset plugins switched from being like, get the film look to get the VHS look. It's, it's crazy for editing. So, so like, 
you know, and, and, and millennials, the hipsters, we all look to like, what is a record player like in like the 60s? And that was really cool. So, so I, I think there's this kind of generational looking back. But my parents, you know, they had me pretty late in life. So when I look back to their childhood, I'm not looking back to the 70s. I'm looking back to 50s and 60s. And I grew up at my grandma's house with just surrounded and steeped in this kind of, it's not even Cold War mythology, but just the 60s. And, and we took all these family trips and we saw like at like, you know, 14, I'm going to the, or even younger, I'm going to the book depository and there's where JFK was shot. And we're going to the uh, White Sands and Los Alamos National Laboratories where they're building the nuclear bomb. And I'm just absorbing all of this history as a really young kid because my aunt just loves to travel. We just pile in her van and, and, and she lives in New Mexico and you just drive across the country once every summer. And, and she, when you go on one of my aunt's trips, this is not a vacation. This is not take it easy, sip your Mai Tai, enjoy the beach. This is go, 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 go. I mean, every single day. I mean, we, 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 we breathe the sigh of relief when someone got sick on one of these trips and we could just like stop for a day. Like that's how intense they would get. Um, but we, I, I, you know, as a kid, I would see all of this history and just absorb it and absorb it and absorb it. And out of that, I just developed this fascination with how absolutely insane Vietnam and the Cold War was. Just absolutely insane. And my dad has the same fascination, but it's World War II. He, he, he loves World War II, and we like it for kind of the same reasons. But when you look back at the history of America, I mean, this is the first time America goes from being like, you know, I, I, I mean, granted, a, a lot of the stuff, you know, when we talk about, you know, Native Americans and how we expanded across the United States is absolutely atrocious. And I have to say that that's absolutely horrible. But when we talk about the wars we fought, we're always kind of painted in this rosy light when you think World War I, World War II, the Revolution. There's this kind of like, yeah, we were kind of the good guys in these wars. You get to Cold War Vietnam, and we become the enemy. And we, we, we have this force, this, this, this bomb that can take all of human existence and wipe it off the face of the earth. And we built like a thousand of them. And then Russia built like a thousand of them. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite jokes that uh, I made up is, you know, the government is taking a look around in the 1960s and go, wow, Nevada's so, uh, so ugly, like, let's nuke that. And that's what they did. They, like, like, they nuked the hell out of Nevada. And it's, like, six miles away from Las Vegas where they're, they're just blowing up bombs. And, 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 and I, we're, we're doing, like, it's game-changing. All of life spins in 1960 for me. The whole world flips on its head. And, you know, World War II is an atrocity. But what could have happened in the Cold War would have been the extinction of mankind. And, and to write about something that has that power is so cool and so fun and such an interesting way to tell a story. I mean, I've got three more stories that involve nuclear bombs that I want to tell. Uh, the, 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 the hydrogen bomb, the nuclear bomb, it's, it's, it's just this deep fascination and it'll always be something I come back to because I, I, I remember as a kid, I think I watched like Atomic Train and learning about Fallout. Um, Atomic Train is a terrible movie. It's like a B movie. It's kind of fun. But it, 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 it's, 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 not, it's, it's not Nolan. Let's put it that way. It's like a made for TV thing. But like, you know, there's a train, it's carrying a nuke. 
it gets derailed, the bomb goes off. I think that's the plot of it. But like having my parents explain to me like nuclear fallout, and I'm like eight or nine. Like that's the scariest thing I've ever heard of. Like you can't go outside because the whole world is irradiated. So all this to say, Black Mark came out of my love of that. And then this building that we're sitting in right here, this building is my dad's recording studio. He, he built this to manufacture products and run a recording studio since uh, I think sometime in the 70s. He started it with his dad. Um, and I grew up here surrounded by all of his 50s and 60s stuff. There's an apartment above us that is straight out of 1970 when they moved in and my dad lived up there for a long time. And so I started looking at what do I love and what do I have easy access to that I could convert into a film and tell the story. And that's how Black Mark became the first one because, you know, period piece, super easy to pull off, right? But like, I just watched Dr. Strangelove for the first time and I'm like, yeah, okay, we're gonna have like a bunker, we're gonna have, uh, we're gonna use the old apartment, we're gonna have spies, I love spies, James Bond has been a favorite for my whole life and we're gonna just take all these things I love, nuclear bombs, spies, the Cold War, and we're gonna throw them all into one. And then along the way, I got a Cold War history because I actually was like, oh shoot, I should know something about this. Because I hadn't even really studied deeply <laughs> before I started writing. So I'm halfway through the script watching History Channel documentaries at two in the morning going like, I'm gonna throw in a reference to that. And like, I run to the computer like, blah, 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 Cuban Missile Crisis, blah, 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 missiles in Turkey. Like, that's a whole plot line now. Um, and, it, and, and, it, and it really sparked this even deeper fascination and then after the film, I'm like, well, I really should know what I'm talking about now. So I kept reading, and then you find out, dude, we had atomic bombs sitting on like the bottom of, I think someone's gonna correct me in the comments, but like on the bottom of B-52 bombers, right? We have these bombs sitting on the bottom of bombers, just on there, and they were doing test runs, and there was no safety device on those bombs that would stop them from detonating on impact. So let's say that you're in a plane and your plane runs out of gas and you're that high off the runway and you just fall, that bomb's gonna go off. That nuke is gonna go off. True story. And then you find out that not only was that true, but if that nuke went off, there would, it, the electromagnetic pulse that comes along with it's gonna knock down all communication. So you can't radio the next base over and say, hey, don't, we're not under attack, we're fine. And now that next base is gonna launch all of their fighters thinking we've been bombed and go bomb uh, uh, Russia and Russia's gonna come bomb us and we're dead. I mean, we came that close throughout the entirety of the Cold War, that close to total extinction. So I, I uh, uh, and reading Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who's the guy who, I think it's the Pentagon Papers, is his, he kind of stole a bunch of stuff from the Pentagon and leaked it about Vietnam. Well, he was a, a Rand Corporation researcher, I believe. Correct me in the comments if I'm wrong. Gotta stop saying that. Uh, but anyway, he's a Rand Corporation researcher. <clears throat> and he, how do I put it? He like was tasked with like, okay, like how do we make this stuff safer? And he documents all of these crazy close calls that could have happened throughout all of the Cold War in this book. And what's wild is I actually realized that Blackmark was a lot closer to reality than fiction after I made the movie. The idea that someone has 
can you know send telephone signals and and launch a nuke a little bit fiction in there there'd have to be a little bit more involved to make that happen but almost plausible like we're, we're shades off from what the actual reality of the situation was and so that really that really blew my mind so maybe not as bad as a movie as military.com said that's my favorite review ever of Blackmark. I, 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 I for, for, so for some reason I'm really critical of my work, but reviews never bother me, like ever. Like I love reviews. Like even a bad review is fun. So Military.com they reviewed the movie, and the big takeaway was it like was like okay production value, but this is weird. Mil and the headline was Military.com says Blackmark is weird, and I'm like yes, that's like the best review ever. Like, I don't know why I, I like, I printed it out and I hung it on a wall. It's so great. It's like weird. Like that, I, 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 I'm thrilled. Like it could, I could not have asked for more. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, uh, that's, that's kind of how Blackmark came about. I mean, there's another screenplay I want to do. Um, I'll, I'll tease it a little bit cause I'm, I've been working on it, but, uh, you know, secure. So right now we're in a process of where all of our nukes are super old. And they have to be refurbished. And part of that refurbishing is they cut the bomb open, the missile open. They pull the plutonium core out and they inspect it. And sometimes they even detonate it to see if it's, you know, to like test how it's going to react and things. And they don't blow it up like an atomic test. We can't do atomic tests anymore. But they, they like implode the core. It's complicated. All this to say, um, security at these facilities, kind of suspect a little bit. I've been doing a lot of digging and, and a lot of research and like there's been a couple of plants that have been shut down because either security or health and safety has been pretty subpar and we're talking about the you know our nuclear arsenal here. So I want to do a story where your main character steals a nuke and I'll just leave it at that and then what does that mean? It'd be really, really fun and set it in some crazy place like New Mexico or something and do a chase. Um, and there's a lot more to it than that, but more on that later. The End of Blindness is my documentary about the only ophthalmologist for 3 million people in rural Ethiopia. Before we even get into it, I have a symptom. It's called do-it-yourself-itis. <laughs> and uh, do-it-yourself-itis is, is a real problem that I have because I, I first of all, I, you know, I'm an indie filmmaker, so I don't have the budget always to go and hire editors. And then I'm also very hands-on, so it's very, it's easy for me to fall into this trap of like, I'm going to just edit this myself. You know, I've been editing toy commercials, Disney princess toy commercials for years. Uh, Sing Along Elsa Doll by Jack Specific. I'm, that's me in the edit bay, uh, if, you, if you've seen that on Nickelodeon, which, you know, I'm sure many people watching this haven't. Um, but I've seen it a thousand times. So. <laughs> So, uh, and it's great. And, and, and that really broke me in as an editor was doing this and Blackmark at the same time. Because I got that job like two days after getting off of the set of Blackmark. I got a phone call. Someone's like, we need an editor, international toy commercials. And I'm like, okay. And that was a huge trial by fire. I, I was not a professional. I pretended to be a professional editor. I'd done some things, but that really pushed my skills to like be super precise super accurate like i'd walk in and the creative director there he's counting frames and he would go that shot needs to be four frames longer 
no, four frames is a sixth of a second. And I'm like, what, what do you mean four frames? And at first I didn't comprehend, like how, do, how, how can you even see that? And by the time I left, I can, I can count in one frame and I can see the difference between one frame left or one frame right. I don't know if that's actually healthy for a narrative project, <laughs> but it, it, really got, it really dialed me in you know, to, to how precise you can get with editing. And, and so that was a really cool experience. So I did that for two years, working on Selling Blackmark, which was my first feature film. Um, and I went to the con film, film market, not the festival. Well, I was at the festival, but that's where they have the market too. And I was watching my sales agent sell Blackmark. And um, I went from there on a direct flight to Ethiopia with Tropical Health Alliance Foundation, which is the nonprofit that sponsors this ophthalmologist's work. And I've been volunteering with them since I was 16. Uh, they really got me started with film. I was this little 16-year-old kid with like a tiny camcorder. And I went over to Ethiopia, invited by them with my family to really just see, see their projects, you know. And we went there, we toured around, and I filmed this little documentary on this crazy foot disease called podoconiosis, which comes from people just walking barefoot in volcanic soil. And their feet just swell up and swell up. And you can't really cure it, but you can treat it with lots of like washing and scrubbing. And then and you can prevent it just by shoes, but they don't have access to shoes in these rural villages. Um, and so that really showed me like, wow, look at what's out there in the world. I mean, we, we have, I had no comprehension at 16 how people on the other side of the planet are living. And it, it's not a knock on how they're living. It's just different. It's just completely different than what we're used to. I mean, dirt roads alone instead of paved roads is a huge thing to adjust to. Um, and, and yet seeing, you know, how really, I think genuinely happy a lot of people are over there, it really put a lot into perspective at a very young age. Um, and so I went the first time, I went back in 2011, filmed a piece on eye surgery, because in Ethiopia, uh, they don't have access to a lot of the social programs we have. So no seeing eye dogs is a big one. So what they'll do is they'll take, you know, grandpa goes blind, kid is gonna lead grandpa around instead of using, you know, these other social programs we have. And that kid, now they can't go to school, they can't work, they can't play, they're just stuck leading grandpa around day after day after day. And usually grandpa's blind because of cataracts. So we filmed this beautiful little piece about a seven-year-old girl named Sena who her grandpa was blind from cataracts, had his cataract surgery, and then there's this beautiful shot in the film where their hands part, and for the first time, Sena, grandpa can walk on his own and Sena is free to go back to school. So that was my first, like, I call it real documentary. You know, podoconiosis was like a five minute thing, that was like a 12 minute thing. Um, but it, it, I've always liked going over to Ethiopia. It's just a really cool place to be. Um, and so I was invited one more time right after I'm selling Blackmark. And so I land in Cannes, watch people sell my movie at one of the most prestigious, you know, Monaco's down the street. And I toured around and saw how the, the wealthiest of the wealthy people of the entire world live and then flew to Ethiopia and saw pretty much the polar opposite. Uh, and that's where I met Dr. Samuel, um, who's the ophthalmologist the movie's about. And we, we followed him for two weeks and watched him as he did, you know, in the time we were there, it must have been at least 50 or 60 cataract surgeries, if not more. 
and saw all those people be able to see again. And I mean, the man is relentless. He, he will go and go and go and thousands of people will flood these eye camps. So he takes cataract surgery on the road. He goes, loads uh, about a thousand pounds of supplies into a seven person bus and drives around the countryside doing cataract surgery. So that means every day he's like resetting up his operating room in a different place. Or maybe he'll camp out for like three or four days in a location. So it's not, it's not quite so, but still, I mean, could you imagine your doctor loading up his uh, exam room and, <laughs> and then you're, you're doing cataract surgery in a, in a clinic in the middle of, uh, not a clinic, but you're doing cataract surgery in like a mission convent, in a classroom. It could be in a room like this and he'd have his, his bed back there and his microscope and they'd sterilize the room 24 hours before operating and then go and, and do, and he has um, like no infections. Almost none. Uh, one year he had zero, and most of the times it's one or two. Same as we're doing here in the United States with people in hyper-sterilized, modern, futuristic rooms. I mean, the man is insane. He's incredible. And so we really, we filmed the story, and then I came back and uh, do-it-yourself-itis kicked in. I said, oh, I can edit this in, uh, in three months and have a nice little 55-minute film. And here we are almost four years later, and I'm still working on the stupid thing. <laughs> Uh, because I have, I, because I, I, I've learned in this process that I have a perfectionist streak. Uh, and that's been a really big eye-opener as a creative and as an artist, is watching myself spiral on some really silly things. One of the, one of the hardest challenges is I, I recorded all of this temp narration for the film. And I, I thought maybe, like the nonprofit people were like, oh, we love your voice, you're young, you, you know, you have this beautiful speaking voice, don't change it. And I'm like, ugh, but it's me. And I showed some filmmakers like, dude, no, 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 no. You cannot <laughs> get that out of there. But I'd spent so much, I spent like half the time editing was just recording the stupid temp track. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna go change it. But right as I go to change it to a professional voiceover artist, my hard drive crashes and I lose all of the temp narration. And now there's no reference to show the actual voiceover artist, like this is what I want. So. I, uh, <laughs> I went back and, and like the perfectionist I am, I recorded every line very fastidiously, got it perfect, right timing, just like how I had it before. And it was a complete waste of time because like two weeks later there was a whole nother voice in there. So I'm really learning how to uh, pick those battles more. Um, I'm really working on not letting that dominate my uh, career and also relying and trusting other artists with my projects. Um, I edited my first feature, Black Mark, and that was a good experience. It taught me a lot about writing and shooting and editing. Editing End of Blindness, I felt like I had to because there was no script. So I was kind of, I, I would make up each scene, you know, almost the morning I'd wake up. I'd say, okay, now what does this scene need to be? And I just feel through it every step of the way. So it was hard to really tell someone, go make this for me. But yeah, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And we're, we're just now finishing, we finished the Blu-ray, or the DVD we finished over the holidays. And now I'm still working on the Blu-ray. Uh, so I ho hopefully in the next two weeks it'll be done. I was doing that before I came. <laughs> so I was invited by an Adventist filmmaking forum. I'm Adventist, that's my denomination. Um, so, and uh, it, it's, it's really funny. Before I even jump into that, you know, talking about faith in Hollywood is kind of a, a really triple-edged sword because there's a lot more people than you'd think who are Christian, have faith, uh, 
other faiths, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, like everyone in this industry, it's a very diverse industry, but people don't like talking about it because it, like, there's a lot of connotation. And uh, there's unfortunately a lot of like, you know, especially from the Christian denomination, a lot of hate that comes out of our, you know, the Christian denomination in general. Um, so I'm still learning how to talk about faith in my career because I disagree with the hate. I don't, I think that's missing the point of religion. I think religion is about love and doing good and being kind and considerate and letting judgment fall to a higher power. It's not our place. And even if there is judgment, I don't think there is for a lot of the things Christians are getting super upset about. Um, but all that to say, I am Adventist. I was born and raised Adventist and my faith has impacted my work. I, I like picking projects that are meaningful. I've never gravitated towards horror slasher films that are just slashers for slasher's sake. Um, Saw is a good film because at least it has some sort of moral theme to it. But like Saw 5, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the point has been missed <laughs> after the first two. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think, you know, Into Blindness was, it, that was my faith coming out. And it's not a faith-based film. And that's the other, that's the third edge of the sword is like nobody wants to be, you know, labeled as a faith-based filmmaker because a lot of faith-based films are very cheesy. Uh, and they, and they kind of get into this like woo-woo area. And I feel like if I'm going to make film, I want to make film that has broad appeal, but a strong message that comes from my faith, not a film that uses, you know, God is like this deus ex machina. God is the hand of God. That's super redundant. But, you know, this, this deus ex machina that just comes in and fixes things, because that's not, that's not really how life works. Um, so I, I, I tend to like theming, and, but into blindness is, I mean, that, that's something that embodies everything I believe in. It's self-sacrifice. It's doing good for other people. It's helping change lives on a very tangible level without being, you know, super woo-woo. Uh, so that, that's kind of where I'm I'm gravitated. So anyway, I'm in Sundance. I go to this. I was invited by an Adventist filmmaker forum uh, to go talk about, you know, how can we support Adventist filmmakers? There are three Adventist film schools, maybe more, that are churning out all these great students, but they're not connected. And when I got started, I had no connection point to these students who are actually in the faith and and, and making projects, and that would be fantastic to have networking and, and, and support. Like, I, I, I'm a self-taught filmmaker, didn't go to film school. So these connections would have been so valuable at an early age, and, and they weren't there. So I'm trying to change that with this forum. And while we're sitting there, the leader of the forum goes, hey, do you wanna go shoot in Israel for 20 days? We're doing a tour and we need someone to document the tour and like tell the story because we were there with the historian on his last trip over to the Holy Lands. And so I was like, yeah, I absolutely, <laughs> there's no way I'm not going. So we're gonna do um, 10 days in Israel, four days in Jordan, and then another 10 days in Egypt. And you know, being the sneaky producer I am, I went to two of my other clients who also need footage from Jordan. And I was like, hey, I'm gonna be over there. Well, I'm gonna grab you some shots for a little bit of cash. And they were like, yeah, we've been trying to get into Jordan for years. So it all worked out. Um, and, and travel filmmaking has been, I mean, into blindness, right? Is a, you go to Ethiopia with one camera. I did two other documentaries, um, The Search for the Mona Lisa and The Search for the Last Supper 
which are about Leonardo da Vinci and his paintings. And we, we actually, this was so cool. We found a like perfect replica of the Last Supper that was done on canvas in, in like Belgium, like out of Antwerp. And you walk into this room and you just see this huge life-size, because the Last Supper is all faded, like the fresco is all faded, but the actual painting. And they think, they've done x-rays and they think Leonardo had a hand in doing at least some of the tracing, some of the characters, some of the painting on it. And, and it is amazing. So I got to go see that and that was my first like travel filmmaker. And then so I've done two or three of those and now going to Israel and Jordan. So those are always a real treat because you get to travel, see the world, you get paid for it. And uh, you know, who's gonna, who, who could complain about that? <laughs> So after doing End of Blindness, I've, I've really sat down and had to think, you know, what's coming next? What's my next project? Where does my career go from here? Um, and I think my course has changed a little bit in that I am starting to refocus my creative energy. Now that I've done my documentary and I've seen how docs work, and I love docs, I will, I will always go shoot a doc. If you ask me to go to Italy or France or Europe or Norway or Antarctica, to shoot a documentary, I'm in. Like, I will go. Will I ever direct another documentary again? Probably, um, but it's gonna be a few years. I wanna do narrative. I love narrative, it is my passion. It is where, I like cameras, I love working with actors. I love directing. I love working with cinematographers. I love the team and, and the entire, you know, the set atmosphere. Um, do I ever wanna do post again? No. I want to hire an editing team, assistant editor, lead editor, maybe like one, an editing PA and have them crank on a film. I want to have a script that they can edit off of so I can properly outsource, you know, outsource and manage and like, what is it called? Delegate to people. I want to, I want to collaborate writing wise. I, when I did Blackmark, I had a big ego that only I could touch the script. I don't want to, I don't want to work in a vacuum anymore. So the big course correct is now, how do I go collaborate with a bunch of people who are really good at what they do so I can bring my taste to the table and guide it, but make something truly exceptional, truly extraordinary? Because if I'd had the ideas for Blackmark, but a better writer, that movie could have done probably twice, as, twice what it did. Because we had, the, we had the raw talent here on the set. You know, we filmed part of Black Mark in this very room where we're sitting. We converted all this whole space into Cold War, Cold War land. And so if I'd had a, you know, a professional writer, I could only imagine how good that could have been. Um, so I'm really much more open to collaboration. And I'll get back to doing solo projects or like write and direct. But I want to work with like a bunch of really like-minded people. I want to work with fun people. I want to work with projects that are attainable, with teams that are, make it easy and fun and not stressful panic attack, anxiety attack, because you're staring at the screen for the 3,000th 3, time in a row. And there will always be part of the watch and rewatch, but at a certain point learning to trust you know, other professionals to do their job professionally and getting out of their way and just bringing your taste to the table. That's where I want to end up. <laughs>